Welcome to Roadmap to Joy. I'm Ginger. I'm coming to you from Arizona. I'm a parent. And with me today is uh, my counterpart, Jake. That's right. I'm Jake Sparks. I am the Embark Treatment Director. I've been working with clients and they're mostly adolescents and their families um, for about 12 years now. And uh, really excited to be here. Being a parent uh, today, I'm really excited about this topic. We're going to be talking about back to school anxiety. So I'm super excited to talk with you about this today. Yeah, it is back to school anxiety season. Yeah. Um, which is not the most magical time of the year um, for students. And therefore, it's not the most magical time of the year for their parents. Either. Yeah. Very stressful for families. 31.9% of all school age kids have some form of anxiety. Two to five percent of those that anxiety manifests as some form of school refusal. It, it really is fairly common, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's something that we need to be aware of and understand the warning signs. So we, as parents, we know how to help our kids, and as teachers or mental health professionals, we are able to see it meet that need. So when you say school refusal, like what would that look like in my daughter? Uh, yeah, how old's your daughter? Well, she's in her twenties. She's twenty right now. So. So the funny thing is, so as we talk, I always like to talk about uh, small children because uh, for some reason, as parents, we have it's really easy to have empathy for a small child. Yeah. And the smaller the child, easier the empathy is. When they get to look more like adults, it's easier to stop having as much empathy for them. Mm-hmm. So when you ask about what does school refusal usually look like, it can be a handful of things. So sometimes it's just outright refusal. I'm not going. I'm not getting in the car. You can't make me go. Well, this is like the quintessential adolescent version. Yeah. I don't know if you still make her go to school right now. No, that's her choice. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so um, some more subtle types that we don't often see is clients with school anxiety or students with school anxiety will show up and they have a really difficult time paying attention. Uh, they have a really difficult time uh, concentrating. They Maybe they fall asleep. Um, maybe they go to school and they can hold it together and then they get home and and their whole world just melts down. I have a, a six-year-old who's mm. in first grade, yeah. and her teacher's like, she's such a great student, and she's so well-behaved, but the second she walks in that door after school, it's like all hell's broken loose um, sometimes. So it can look different based on age, um, but what is, what is important for people to realize is is where that anxiety is coming from and what's happening physiologically. And when we say school anxiety, it's not necessarily like there's no like diagnosis. This is school anxiety. And school anxiety is not necessarily different than like home anxiety or I don't want to go to grandma's house. So I have grandma's house anxiety. Does that make sense? It's yeah. not like a specific thing. Really what we talk about with school anxiety is this lump of emotions and feelings and difficulty that just feels so yucky inside. And so we just couch that all together as anxiety. But really there's so much more happening um, underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. What are some of those reasons that that would be happening? Yeah, great, great question. And that's that's the right question to be asking is what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Whenever I have a parent that's bringing their adolescent to me for therapy and they say school refusal, I'll ask a parent, well, why are you bringing them in? And 99 times out of 100, I hear things like, well, they're refusing to go to school. They won't do their homework. They're skipping classes. Um, they're oppositional. They're defiant to their teachers. Mm-hmm. And they start listing all these uh, things. But if you notice about that list, all of those are behaviors. 
They're all just things that the student or the child is doing. And the parent is like, I don't want you doing those things. Um, So essentially they're saying, where's the off button on my kid? Yeah. Can I flip it to easy mode? And that's really what they want to do. It's like, oh, there's this function, malfunctioning. Can we just flip it to functioning? And that's what they want. But what parents are not realizing is now, if you if you were to Google school anxiety, what you'll get is a list of tips and techniques and strategies that can help your kid. However, they're almost always going to be wrong and almost always going to make the situation worse. And what do you mean by that, like wrong? Yeah. So what we have to understand is our we're, we're, the more the research, the more we learn, the more we're seeing this, we talk about the brain-body connection. Mm-hmm. And we used to talk about them as separate. Like I have my body and I have my brain. Well, now we realize that our brains actually exist inside of our bodies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now the separation comes if I get an appendicitis, no amount of mental willpower or psychological <laughs> energy is going to resolve that appendicitis, right? I need that medical intervention. But what uh, parents and even adolescents themselves or young children don't realize is all of the ways that their body is actually priming them for the anxiety. This comes out of decades of research from uh, Bruce Perry, uh, Stephen Porges, Lisa Feldman Barrett. You can Google all those names, Dan Siegel. What we're learning is about how your body's uh, nervous system responds to stress. So you here in this room, you have what's called a neuroreceptivity. Have you ever heard that term before? <laughs> no. It's a new one. Jotted down neuroreceptivity, which is this idea that consciously or subconsciously your body is able to identify and respond to threats. Okay. okay. Someone doesn't have to tell you. Yeah. You just can feel it. So if I sit here and I start getting really weird or awkward or like you're going to be like, what's Jake doing? He's, like you'll feel my threat yeah. and you'll start having this anxiety yeah, yeah. thing that occurs. You're like, yes, I'm having it now. Yeah, yeah. that totally makes sense. <laughs> so think about a brand new baby. Uh-huh. There's no amount of like logic or reasoning or explanation you can give to a baby. The only way a baby learns about its environment is through all of these sensory inputs. Mm-hmm. How does it feel in here? How does it sound? What am I seeing? All of those things. And none of those are factual words, cognition, right? It just has to use its what it actually is is its central nervous system and these other nervous systems to interpret what's happening. Mm. And when all of these nervous systems, when things are online and they're safe and they're good, um, we we say that body's fully integrated. They're able to use their resources. Mm. Well, problems can arise, particularly with an anxiety, when our body's responding to these threats, maybe even below our consciousness, and it's putting us in this activated state. So like panic, flight or fight mode. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a kid who's refusing to go to school, it's not that they have a bad attitude and they're just too lazy or um, it's none of that. Those that actually refusing to go to school is actually a very healthy, adaptive response Mm. to panic and fear and stress. Right. So if your body, your central nervous system is activated and you're in this constant state of you better fight for your life, that's no time to go sit in math class. That's this, this stimulus is heartful and scary and I need to avoid it. So what parents sometimes do is they force their kid to go sit in that dangerous environment. It's not actually dangerous, but to the client, to the student, it can feel that way. It can feel shocking and scary. And, or they'll give them tips or tricks or say, well, you're just too lazy. You need to work harder. They'll start doing all of these things. But what they're not doing 
is recognizing physiologically what's happening for their child. Mm -hmm. And so it's this total mismatch um, where we're trying to, actually your body's working excellently. That's when there's an alarm, you're supposed to have these warning signs. The, the warning signs are, um, yeah, help, help, helpful, good things. They're just, they're just overactive. They're just responding to things that aren't actually, actually dangerous. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there anything else in school you are aware of, like that would be stressful for my my child that we should be aware of? Some of the literature they talk about these body budgets. Okay, have you ever heard that term, mm -mm, body no. budget? So what this is is this relationship between all the things that are stressing you out is like a negative like a withdrawal, and then all of the things that help bolster you up is like a deposit. Okay. Oh, okay. So what's go things are going good and some things are going bad. And in theory, if you're like in the plus side, you got money in the bank, you're going to be regulated. You'll be able to better adapt to life's stresses. Does that make sense? You're like on good ground. It's yeah. when you get into the negative, mm -hmm. there's too much, the stress is, or the environment is too stressful. It has now exceeded your ability to cope. So now you're in the negative. Mm -hmm. and that's what they say your body budget's negative. What school becomes particularly hard, especially for uh, an adolescent, is because there's so many various stressors. Okay, so academically, it's like my full-time job. I got to sh show up and I got to get good grades and I don't quite understand this material. So those are all withdrawals, withdrawals, withdrawals. Mm -hmm. And then I got to deal with my peers, my my friends, yeah. and my my all the normal social interactions of being an adolescent. Um, those are all withdrawals, withdrawals, withdrawals. Yeah. Um, and then I got to just sit and focus in a class all day when actually developmentally it might be more appropriate for me to be out running and exercising mm -hmm. or doing these uh, creativity, all these other outlets that maybe me. So those are all withdrawals, withdrawals, withdrawals. Does that make sense? There's yeah. all these small little things. And if those are not met with deposits, then it's their the stressors are going to exceed their ability to cope. And that's why if you Google like tips to help my teen better manage their anxiety, um, most people get it wrong because if you if I have a, if I have a, if I go to my six year old and she's really stressed about school and um, she's refusing to get out of the car and having these meltdowns and I'm like you just need to do some breathing exercises. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you just breathe better? Yeah. Is that going to be a deposit? No, that's just one more expectation that she can't mm -hmm. measure up to. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe if I'm really dysregulated parent, I might say, oh, you're just too lazy. You just don't want it. You just don't want it enough. In my day, we did. Does that make sense? So yeah. we're just continuing to make those withdrawals. Yeah. So you're talking about withdrawals so much. So as a parent, what should I be doing then correctly that would actually make a deposit that would make a difference to like relieve some of this anxiety? Yeah. So the best well-intentioned parents sometimes have the hardest time with this because hmm. they want their kid to be successful because they care so much and they know what's at stake. So that what they struggle with is uh, seeing their child's behaviors appropriately. So what I mean by that is um, I, we always talk about behaviors are the, like the fire alarm, mm. not the fire. Gotcha. So, and that can be really hard. I've worked with um, a family where like, yeah, my 15-year-old, I say, hey, get to school. And they say, F you, I'm never doing what you want me to do. That feels like a problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, no, that's actually not the problem. Yeah. The problem is their nervous system is so escalated, so activated, they can't tolerate school. Your daughter saying, 
leave me alone, I'm, I don't want to go to school, actually makes sense in the context of what's happening physiologically. With So what we need to do is understand on a, on a nervous system level what's actually happening organically for her, and then we can attune to that. We always talk about the, uh, the pyramid, or not the pyramid, the, the iceberg. So the behavior is just the tip of the iceberg, and that's the thing that we can see, and that's the thing we want to intervene on, like stop that or yeah. build that up. But really, we need to pay attention to all the stuff happening below the surface. So really, your question is, what can parents do? Yeah. It should be, well, how do we, the appropriate question is, how do we use that behavior to recognize when something's going wrong right. on a neurobiological nervous system level? And how do I, as a parent, meet them and resolve that issue? Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a process we call co-regulation. Um, and co-regulation is all about if I have, again, we empathize really easy with small children. And I have small children at home. Yeah. Um, so it's easy. So if I have this um, six-year-old that's really panicked about school and her nervous system's just fired, she's in flight or fight mode, there's no blood going to her frontal cortex, so logic is out the window. Reasoning is out the window. Cause, uh, cause and effect is out the window. So there's no amount of, if you get in the car, I'll give you a cookie when you get home. That does not work. Gotcha. Right? Because that's like thinking and logic and reasoning. If I say, if you don't go to school, you won't get into a good college. That has no meaning to her because mm -hmm. that's, again, logic and reasoning and future. I need to respond so that co-regulation is me coming in, sitting by her, and letting my dysregulated six-year-old utilize my centered, mm. structured nervous system wow. that's intact. Mm -hmm. um, so she's literally borrowing my healthy, centered, emotionally regulated wow. brain. Wow, yeah, yeah. And they're so just sitting with them. It's as simple as that sometimes. Yeah. It's really, it's not about the doing. It's about sitting and connecting and being there. And there's three examples that I always bring up because parents, especially great, well-intentioned parents, they want to do something. They want to nip that behavior in the bud, right? So three examples I always bring up is that co-regulation is bi-directional. So the communication's happening both, both ways. Mm. So one example I bring up um, if you have a newborn baby and a mother who's nursing, somehow that mother's body is producing milk that is custom tailored to meet that needs of that baby, both in terms of quantity and nutrition value, right? Like there's something about the baby and the mom. They, there's this like invisible interaction that they're having and they can just sync up. Another example, uh, they did a study that said uh, newborns uh, learn to cry at the exact frequency their parents find most annoying. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's... that is true. <laughs> like, y'all, yeah, going to make sense because, yeah. like, I really need my caregiver to respond to me. Yeah. So I'm gonna find that right yeah. pitch. Uh -huh. So by the parents responding, like, there's this really great sync up that happens. Uh, a third example: there is, I'm, I might, I don't want to butcher, butcher the details, but they gave these young children, four, three, four, five years old. Uh, put them in a room with a really complicated puzzle and it was kind of impossible to solve and they wanted to see how long how resilient the kids could be and then they brought a caregiver in a parent usually and said don't do anything don't help them with the puzzle don't really interact just be there and they found that those small age children could stay with the task three to four times longer three to four times more resilient just with a safe caregiver sitting next wow. to them 
Didn't have to say or do anything, just being there. So I always tell families, like, your presence, it's like Bluetooth. Like, you just sync up to each other and you just – and so that's really what co-regulation is about is just sitting there. Um, it's not – you don't just sit there, but it's a process of letting that child utilize your internal resources. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and then as as you build these co-regulatory process – that's the avenue for self-regulation, right? That's that's ultimately where we want to go. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me, just your presence alone, you know? What, what a power that is. Yeah. The, the, the trick to that is it it only works if you can be present. Mm, not distracted? Right? Not distracted yeah. and not... Um, so we talk about the, the, the child might be flipping her lid and we actually use, um, you'll see us do this a lot. Have you seen this? Mm -mm. So this is part of your, this is actually a great model for your brain. So if you hold up your hand here, mm -hmm. uh, this is this is like your brain stem. Okay. And what's so important to learn is that it grows from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's your brain stem. And if you take your thumb here, this midsection is your midbrain. And this is your amygdala. And this is where all your emotion comes from. So brain stem is like, make sure your heart's beating, make sure your lungs work. And then on top of that is build the hardware for emotion. And then on top of that is your top of your brain is logic, reasoning, all of this more advanced kind of thinking. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. When we get dysregulated, literally the blood stops flowing to the top of our brain. So it comes offline and it becomes disconnected. Mm -hmm. And now we're just acting on pure emotion. Ah, uh, yeah. So when a caregiver is regulated, they can come down and they can just be present because I'm regulated. But if... I, as a parent, am not regulated. If my toddler is driving me nuts and I'm in a rage because they've been screaming for 30 minutes about how the blue popsicle is too blue and they wanted the red one or whatever, you know what I mean? And I, all of a sudden, now I'm flipped. My ability to be a co-regulating force mm -hmm. is... is uh, so that's what it means about being present. Yeah, you have to find a way to be regulated yourself. Makes sense. If, if you're my mom, I can't borrow your working nervous system, if yours is offline too. Yeah. We're going to have to go find someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your point is, because if if I'm dysregulated, they're going to probably borrow that dysregulation. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Yes, exactly. And that's actually what we see happen. There are within our brain these what are called mirror neurons. So just like our nervous system can respond to threats, if you're in a room and someone walks in, everyone just looks over. At who's who's walking in that room? Like we just respond to all these. Oh, this is happening. This is new. Mm -hmm. um, we just absorb that. Same thing with mirror neurons. I can walk home at night and walk in the front door after work, and the energy that I bring into the room will greatly influence how my kids respond to me. Mm -hmm. um, so we can use that for our advantage, and when we're not intentional, we'll, we'll be using it for our disadvantage. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking back to my daughter when she was younger, you know, these milestones when she would transition from like primary school to middle school. And like as a parent, how can I support like these big like transitions? Yeah, right. For like from an anxiety perspective. Yeah, great. So recognize, especially the smaller the kid, the easier, the more there are those we called about those disruptors, those those withdrawals. Okay, so a big change in school, change in teacher, change in structure. If you move and have to go to a new school, um, those are all really small or maybe even big withdrawals. So what that means is the deposits will have to be able to mitigate the withdrawals. Okay? 
So some helpful things um, is when your child is in a regulated state, so a couple weeks beforehand, or you used to start talking and prepping and saying, hey, this is going to happen. This will be this will be tough, and here's how we'll mitigate. Does that make sense? Yeah. We'll, we'll try to help and coach and prepare emotionally for that, knowing that there'll be some some withdrawals. Um, there are also lots of things that can be done to, depending on the age of the kid. If I had a a, a small like going to kindergarten or first grade, I might say, I'm going to walk you to your teacher's door, and I'm going to be with you and your teacher, and we're going to spend three minutes in a soft, calm place. I'll take your hand. At the end of it, your teacher will take your hand. And we'll just make that transition nice and soft. So you're painting a picture almost ahead of time? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're painting a picture. What we're trying to do is really we're mitigating the withdrawals and amplifying the deposit. So if I know, hey, she's got to go to a new school. This is going to be a big withdrawal. I need to be able to afford that withdrawal. So what can I do to help build in deposits? Yeah, yeah. And this, this, a lot of schools do this now. Before your first day of first grade, come tour the school. Come meet your teacher. Come go through all those things so when you get there to do it live in person for the first time, it's not as big of a withdrawal. What are the best questions as a parent that I could ask, like my daughter, um, just around anxiety and any stressors that she's having at school? Just how can I, like, dig into that so that I support her the best way? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I always say, so the behaviors that we see are really valuable indicators. Okay. So. Uh, I would first want to be really wa- aware of, is she going to bed on time? Is she waking up? Uh, how will I know if she comes home from school and she runs into her room and doesn't come out for two hours? I'm like, oh, that's not like her. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I might look for these behaviors to start to tell me. I should be more curious. Or- yeah, I should be more curious. I should not be. Um, if there's things that um, aren't specifically concerning to you, you're just wanting to know. Um we're always encouraged to find age-appropriate ways to ask and talk. So for, again, my six-year-old, if I just say, how was your day? She's going to say, good, because her day was this huge, giant thing. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even know how to break that down. But if I say, who was the person or what was the person sitting next to you eating for lunch? Mm-hmm. She'll be like, oh, I sat next to so-and-so, and he had this hot bologna sandwich or whatever it was, right? So then if I give her that, she can talk. Now, if I have a 16-year-old, mm-hmm. that would probably not be yeah. the right question. Yeah. Um, but I would still look for those behaviors and, and look for how is our body budget doing? How is, she, is there enough deposits to mitigate all of the withdrawals? So like for high school um, age, you know, is there anything that you recommend uh, to make those deposits and engage those conversations yeah. with our high schoolers? Yeah. Uh, regular experience all comes back to that co-regulation process because what, what we need to remember is that stress is actually great. Kids mm, need stress. Really? That, yeah. I know. You're like, I must be doing awesome then because I have plenty <laughs> of stress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, it is great. That's how we learn and that's how we grow. So think about if you want to like get stronger, they're only real like physically – like, I want to be a better runner or I want to climb the mountain or whatever. The only way to do it is to do this exercise, which is going to stress out your body. Mm. Even on a cellular level, we know there's a process called hormesis or, or we talk about hormetic effects of a specific protocol or exercise, which is stressing out your body for short periods of time for the purpose of making them stronger. Mm. Uh, so stress is actually really good. Mm. Uh, we should encourage stress if 
we're not in some level of stress, we're probably not growing. Now, most of us, we don't have the problem of not enough stress. Most of us, just normal everyday life and expectations. Uh, but we do see this sometimes with kids. If they've, if they've not had a, the appropriate stressors, they might be developmentally behind because they haven't, haven't been. If I take my new, brand new baby and I never let her touch the floor, she's never going to learn to sit up or crawl or walk, right? If I just yeah. always hold her and carry her everywhere, she needs the stress of sitting on her belly and trying to find her way to her, to push up so she can learn to crawl. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So where it becomes a problem is when our, uh, our level of stress exceeds our ability to cope. Mm. So as a parent, that's what we need to be looking for is, is, is this an appropriate and is this an appropriate level of stress of stress and they're coping? Um, and the thing I always talk about again is that co-regulation. If I have a kid or if my daughter comes home and um, is stressed and she's telling me she's stressed, but we come home and we sit together and we can have this co-regulatory process and I know that we're co-regulating, then I feel like, yeah, we're actually meeting that level of stress. It's when I'm not seeing indicators of co-regulation. Like she can't co-regulate. She's way, her lid's way too flipped. That means we've, we're now exceeding, um, we're exceeding the level of stress that she has. That's gotcha. what becomes a problem. Gotcha. So how can I encourage my daughter to go to school, be involved in school without like increasing her anxiety around school? Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like if you were just like, you got to go and be there. And yeah. But not amp up that anxiety. Yeah. Or not like, how do you not put all the pressure on? Yeah. I always believe that kids do well when they can. Okay. So what I mean by that is, I think this of all humans too, when we have the option to choose to, for help and healing and growth, that's what we choose. So most kids want, they don't love doing homework and they don't love being in class all day. I get those, all those bummer things, but they have this inherent sense of growth. I do want to get better. I want to be, I want to be a human. I want to be a responsible adult. and depending on what developmental they are or how developmentally advanced they are or delayed they are for their age, that will come and go. In theory, shouldn't be a parent's job to constantly nudge their kid to go to school, right? There's, there's some level of they're um, left to their own devices. We want them to make healthy decisions on their own, not because their mom's or their dad's waving a finger at them. Now, all kids will need some help and some reminders and um, to have a structure built in. Did you do your homework? Not most kids don't like rush home to, I can't wait. I'm a <laughs> self-actualized uh, self human. I can't wait to do all my homework the second <laughs> right. I get home. Most of us are not that way. Right. Uh, and that's okay. So uh, as long as we can, again, come back to experiences of co-regulation prior to the discussion. So parents, if you, if you Google online, it'll be like, talk to your kids. But if your kid's lid is flipped and their nervous system's freaking out and they're in flight or fight mode, and you're like, hey, go to school, or let's do this, or let's talk about it. You're just going to freak them out more. So what I, talking is great once they're here. Okay. And once you're both here, then you can sit and talk. And like, how is it going? What is going on? Mm -hmm. um, what help do you need? So I, I realize we haven't said this. So one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, okay, co-regulation. I get that. Anxieties, all this physical stuff. How do I know if I'm co-regulating? Like, how do I know if that process is working? Right. So um, there are five things to look for. Okay. Five indicators that your nervous system is helping manage your child's nervous system. So the first one is proximity. 
can you get close? Can you sit by them? Uh, um, or if you're like, hey, come here, and they like run away, or like I want to be left alone, like don't even get close to me, that's a sign their lips flip. But they allow you to get close. Uh, second one, uh, safe touch. Yeah, are they okay with a touch on the arm? If you put their arm and they like wiggle away, uh, there's a lot of shame happening, a lot of this. They're not able, they're not co-regulating. Um, can they make eye contact? If they won't look at you, their head's up, or they're all over, they're distressed. Hmm. Um, we say congruency of affect, meaning does their face match their voice? So if you ask, hey, how's it going? I'm fine. Everything's going great. Right. Like, oh, okay. Is it really, though? Yeah. Or vice versa, we see this a lot of, like, how was your day? Oh, it was only the worst day I've ever had in my whole life. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Like, that's a gr- pretty good indicator they're flipped. And then... The last one we look for is, are they receptive to empathy? So when you express empathy to them, um, like, ah, tell me about it. That sounds, that sounds so hard. If I'm you, I'd be so, I'd feel so abandoned, or so alone, or I can't believe your friends did. Um, when you express empathy, can they receive that and soak into it? Or are they like, well, you don't know me. You don't care. Uh, that's a pretty good sign that they're dysregulated. So I wouldn't try to do any poking or prodding or why don't you go to school or what's going on here until I know I have those five markers of, re- of regulation. Mm-hmm. Because again, there's the iceberg and there's all that stuff underneath it and all this body stuff's going on and we can't just peek at the iceberg and start chipping away at the top without understanding what's happening. Mm-hmm. Just as the brain develops from the bottom up, our interventions have to be developed from the bottom up. And if not- none of this is online, you're Logic and reasoning, all of that's not connected. No amount of talk and logic and reasoning is really going to get to the issue. Hmm. Um, and what it actually does is it makes it worse because when we have a misattuned approach, if I tell my daughter, yeah. hey, why aren't you going to school? You should be doing this. Don't you know that if you don't go to class, you're going to not get into college and her lid is flipped? Mm-hmm. That's a total misattunement. I'm giving her logic and reasoning when she needs emotional support. And what I am actually doing is creating an experience of shame for her. Oh, yeah. So she, that could potentially will provide her an opportunity to incorporate more shame into her schema hmm. and to herself. Wow. Uh, conversely, when you can meet someone and co-regulate, that is actually an antidote to shame. Okay. Um, so I always encourage parents to be careful. And when they Google, it's like, It'll give you all the tips and tricks. Have your child do breathing exercises and this and this. And those are fine once we have the co-regulation. Mm. Once we know their nervous system's on board. Gotcha. Um, then we can start employing all those strategies. So at what point should I be concerned about, you know, my child and school around school anxiety and really get, you know, maybe some help from the school or from the teacher or, you know, engage people outside of just me, you know, the parents? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think it's ever, uh, I, I think you can always keep those options open and those lines of communication. So even if I have a seemingly healthy, happy, normal, love school, no school issues, I would still want to have some connection to her teachers and to her, those resources. Just communicating, letting them know. Yeah. Seeing what they're seeing. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then when something does happen, we're not so reactive. Like, oh, crap, what happened? Now I got to. So you ask though, what what behaviors would I start to see that I'm like, okay, maybe I need to do more or beyond. So um, again, the behaviors are the warning sign that something's going on. So if we start to see the warning signs, start to hear the fire alarm, absolutely, that's a sign that we should be doing something. 
Um, so again, some of the warning signs would be if I saw my child come home and um, if they can if they can talk to me about I feel stressed, overwhelmed, I'm not getting these things done. If I see major behavior changes, um, isolating in their room when they weren't before, uh, they're spending a lot more time out of the house when they weren't before, or they're spending a lot more time in the house when they weren't before. They're not going out and being with their friends. So those major behavior changes would be concerning for me. Um, the other great thing um, about many adolescents is that it's usually not domain-specific. Uh, I don't want to go to football practice anymore. Like if, if relationships or school are tough, they're probably also tough at church or at, yeah, football camp or what is that? Does that make sense? Or, yeah. So you're going to see this kind of more global change in their thinking um, and the way they're acting. Um, if it's not global, it's like, I feel great, but they, you hear them complain about their math teacher every day. They seem to be doing well, but what's going on in math class? Let's see if we can target that. That might lead me to. Do you think I need to get specific with any accommodations that the school, the teachers that, you know, that I should request if I see a lot of anxiety or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So certainly um, our approach, we'd always want to meet the meet. We always say meet the client where they are, meet the student where they are. So we talk we talk about stress is good. Too much is it's not good. Right. So I always tell parents, yeah, we want to accommodate but we don't want to over-accommodate, right? So when, again, we have empathy for babies, so I always use them. Uh, when, if you have a baby that likes to be held, but you never put them down and never let them go through the discomfort, then they never learn to walk. So we have to brush up against that challenge, right? So I would not ever want to accommodate all things away. So some parents have said, they really don't like going to school, so I'm just going to pull them out and homeschool. And maybe that's what each kid needs, or maybe that's what this one kid needs, but that um, can be dangerous because now you've just removed the, the stress for them to work on. Does that make sense? Yeah. They, they need something to brush up against so they can be in that growth zone. So there's your comfort zone, growth zone, and then we say like the, oh, crap, like panic zone. Mm -hmm. So we want to find ways to help them be in that growth zone. So uh, accommodations can be helpful depending on the underlying some of the underlying issues. One, one thing that we haven't talked about is some of the specific reasons why someone might be dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So and this is really where your accommodations question gets um, interesting because if I have like a, maybe I, I have a learning disorder, dyslexia. So certain classes are really difficult for me and those are big withdrawals. So I might need some specific supports to manage my dyslexia or another learning disorder. We, we should understand that the co-regulation and the body, nervous system, all that still is in play, but we need to make sure we are understanding why those are stressing them, like what those stressors or withdrawals actually are so that we can be targeted in our accommodation. Gotcha. Versus just a blanket accommodation. When should I consider seeking like therapy for uh, my son or daughter regarding school anxiety, at what point do you think I should really, you know, go to that outside help to a therapist? So I'm of the belief that most of us could benefit from some therapy mm -hmm, from time totally. to time. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm biased as as a therapist. <laughs> so particularly when we see um, the level of stress overwhelming their ability to cope. Okay, so we're continuing to see the same stressful behaviors. And then even once we've done some really basic accommodations, 
and we're still seeing that level of stress, it tells me that we probably need um, some outside help to mitigate the withdrawals, mitigate the stressors, and then to amplify and build the supports. And what would that look like in the, you know, my son or daughter? Like, can you give me some like specific examples of what that could look like? Uh, in terms of therapy? What? No, in terms of like what I should be looking for, you know, behavior wise in order to seek, you know, like a therapist or an outside help for them. Does that make sense? Like specific maybe behaviors, symptoms, if you will, yeah. that I would be seeing that I really should be like, ah, uh, you know, maybe I need more help than just what I can provide. Yeah. Well, certainly if we're starting to see more global mental health concerns. So it's not just, yeah, they're anxious about school but they're also having a lot of depression symptoms. They also have some global anxiety. Maybe they're still a lot of separation anxiety. Like they, my 15-year-old should want to go out with her friends, but it's hard for her to leave my side as a parent. That, does that make sense? So yeah. we would start to look for those other big things. If there's ever instances of uh, self-harm, uh, suicidal, suicidal thoughts, suicidal actions, those certainly would be red flags that, this is not just school anxiety. There's a lot more mental health going. The other thing I would say is, as a family, what is your ability to provide co-regulatory experiences? And a lot of our families, we talk about this, and I'll ask, like, when's the last time you two felt you could co-regulate together? And the mom, I've seen this where mom or dad just break down in tears and say, the last time I held you. Like, the last time you were small enough to hold in my arms. Oh. And that's... Um, Sometimes we need a therapist or we need someone else to how do we get our relationship back mm -hmm. where parents aren't a, a, a liability, they can actually be the emotional asset they need to be. And sometimes that requires a lot of therapy and communication. And more often than not, it's helping parents. Because most of us, everything I'm saying, most of us were not raised this way. Right. Right. This is, they, they guess that somewhere between 30 and 67% of anxiety is hereditable meaning it's like passed on generationally. But in the study, you can actually read it and says, it's really hard though to separate. Is it that the mom, the parents are not able to provide co-regulation because they themselves aren't co-regulated, right? So it's not actually, is it purely genetic or is there all this environmental stuff? So you ask about therapy, I would, when I say, when's the last time you were able to co-regulate? And then I'll ask the parents, when's the last time you yourself could co-regulate? Wow. Just with each other or with someone else in your life. And they're like, oh, actually, kind of always like my lid's always kind of flipped. Or maybe I'm like hanging wow. on with two. Yeah. I'm like, it's like ping, ping, and it's like falling off. So those certainly would be instances where I would want someone in therapy. If you're saying we're able to co-regulate, we have that, and we're making some accommodations, and we're seeing some growth, and we're able to manage the stressors, and the risks are low. Like we're not talking about self-harm. We're not talking about suicidality. Like we're just stumbling uh kind of going through it um that's a good time to involve your support system gotcha everyone that you have gotcha so when i'm looking for a therapist for my son or daughter um you know around school anxiety or anything in life is there any tips you have on how to find like the best therapist for my son or daughter yeah absolutely so um certainly we at embark have a lot of resources so if we could help we can help connect families to appropriate resources that meet their needs. Uh, we don't want to over intervene and we don't want to under intervene. Um, I would also always encourage students to uh, students and families to reach out to their local support network. So 
your high school has counselors. They have resources for people local in your area to get you connected to. You can also, uh, I mean, look at the back of your insurance card. There's lots of ways to find the people. What we want to make sure is you can have uh, a therapist that can help provide that safety and security relationally, a therapist that can understand the goal isn't to turn off the fire alarm, right? So the behaviors are the fire alarm. We don't want someone that just turns off the fire alarm while the underground fire is still burning. So we got to need to make sure we can really get to physiologically what's happening so that they're able to manage. They have enough deposits to manage all the withdrawals. Are there any resources that you can recommend, you know, for me as a parent uh, when it comes to, you know, just managing school anxiety or any anything that I should be up to speed on with resources that can support my son or daughter? Yeah, of, of course. So again, similar. So uh, local agencies, um, your high school or other local health centers will have tips and things. Uh, us at Embark, we have, a, we can provide a lot of help and a lot of support um, for a wide continuum of presenting issues and problems, um, and then all over the country. One book I always recommend is called Brain Body Parenting by uh, Mona Delahook, um, who is a psychologist that talks a lot about what we've talked about today. Um, done a lot of work, again, with the last two decades of research around how our body creates and drives our emotions and uh, how we can mitigate our body sensations to drive our mental health. Is there any resources that you can recommend for my teenager specifically, like books, websites, anything for that that's geared more for them that would be helpful? Their biggest resource is going to be the people in their lives. Mm -hmm. So do they have coaches, uh, church leaders, parents, neighbors, all of those other people? Um, if they want to do some more research around specific health issues or diagnoses or mental health concerns, I would encourage them or their parent to reach out to um, reach out to us here at Embark and we can connect them to resources local in their area. Anxiety becomes such a, just a, a catch-all for everything. Yeah. I, I don't want to experience, it feels so yucky and so I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed, I'm this. And what is important to remember is when we can find meaning and purpose mm. in our struggles, our struggles become easier to overcome. But we talk a lot about creating joy yeah. And it's actually a, a great opportunity to have these stressors. Stress makes us healthier. It makes us stronger. Too much stress can be difficult. But when uh, I work with clients and they can get to a point where they say, my brain is really fast. It's really overreactive. My body's always heightened. I'm always ready for something bad to happen. But that's been an incredible opportunity to get to know myself. Hmm. And I'm going to be uh, a better student because of that. I'm going to be a better partner. I'm going to be a better parent because of my opportunity to get to know myself. Mm. And um, I'm really excited for the next generation because there's a lot more of the youth of today that are doing this mental health work. Yeah. And knowing themselves better and finding joy and meaning and purpose in their difficulties, um, which I think is really tremendous. I want everyone to know if you're struggling with the anxiety, particularly around school, it's normal. You're not flawed or broken, um, so true. be nice to yourself and make sure you're able to have people in your life that can be assets and help you and or regulate with you to give you all the buffers that you need. Mm, I love that.
And is there any like quick tips, tricks you have for me as a parent or even, you know, my teenager, my child to do to create joy? You know, is there any like easy, easy ways, easy tips, tricks uh, to create joy in our lives? One of the issues when your life becomes so symptomatic, like I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I'm worried about stuff and I maybe doing these like we just start running away from symptoms. Like That's our whole life. Just keep that at bay. Just keep that away. Um, and sometimes, well, what we always talk about is in order to find joy, it's that none of that's going to be joy. Even running away from it, even if all that was gone, that's still not joy. Joy is about having purpose and meaning in your life. And I'll talk with a, a lot of a lot of students around. Even though you're anxious, what are you passionate about? And they'll say like, "Well, I used to be really into astronomy, yeah, but since my anxiety, I can't be." And I say, "Well, why can't you be anxious?" and an astronomer mm -hmm. do you have to get rid of all those symptoms in order to do the things that you love I'm like oh i don't know do i and then we start can start talking about well i also want to be a great i want to be a great aunt my nieces and nephews mm -hmm. okay can you be anxious and a great aunt well no okay how come well because i can't leave the house okay so how can you we get you to be a great aunt what what does that mean to you and how do you get them like oh actually I can't. I can feel what I'm feeling and do what I want to do anyway. And um, kind of flipping that in their mind. I don't have to get rid of all these things I don't like about myself in order yeah. to live the life I want to live. And actually, the more I just be who I want to be, regardless of my anxiety or my fears or my worries, uh, the, the happier I am and the joy and meaning and purpose I, I, I have. Mm, how about uh, that? The ultimate goal, we talk about co-regulation. The goal is to do self-regulation, right? So kids learn to co-regulate with a parent so they can be autonomous and launch into adulthood. But self-regulation is not the actual goal. The actual goal is that you then become a co-regulator for other people, mm -hmm. right? So that you can have friends and you can be that strong, solid base that other people can come and lean to. When, when you're now the adult and you're now the parent and you have your own kids, they can come and co-regulate to you. That's the goal where we are able to serve create great meaning and purpose for the people that mean the most to us. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for uh, joining us today yeah, on you. the Roadmap to Joy and discussing back-to-school anxiety and tips and tricks as a parent that we can do to kind of navigate this uh, these challenges. I would encourage everybody to be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And we appreciate you joining us today on this Roadmap to Joy. Thank you. Thank you.